Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun! He's gonna shoot the president! Holy smokes, I've gotta do something! All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. Important things that people don't discuss is about this fellow named Robert McEwen. And to me, Robert McEwen is one of the keys to understanding the assassination. Robert McEwen was a CIA gun runner, no doubt about it. He was, you know, he ran guns to Castro, knew Castro personally very, very well. McEwen was interviewed by the House Select Committee for hours. Uh, those tape recordings, which I made copies of, are in the National Archives, they're available to researchers. And if you listen to McEwen and his conversations with the House Select Committee, you get a very, very different view of what was going on. And if that rifle would have been purchased, if McEwen would have sold Oswald that rifle, you can bet that rifle would have wound up on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Another thought that I had about the rifle in connection with McEwen, what occurred to me was, if they're trying to buy a rifle or rifles from McEwen, assassination weapons. Maybe that whole Kleins thing never happened in March. They hadn't even chosen the assassination weapon yet. That's why we were trying to get one from McEwen. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 103 of the Lone Gummit Podcast. This is your boy Rob Clark, your host, your captain of the ship, and tonight... I have a mismatch potpourri of subjects that I'd like to discuss with you. Um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and starting off there, the voice you just heard was John Armstrong, a uh, noted researcher, author of Harvey and Lee, on Black Hop Radio, discussing the role of Robert McEwen. Now, for those of you who don't know who Robert McEwen is, um, he was an individual who owned a business in Cuba under the Batista regime. And he was subsequently booted out of the country by Batista. And when Castro took over, um, well, I should say, while Castro was planning the overthrow, um, McEwen was instrumental 
and shipping guns and armaments and all this stuff to Castro in Cuba. And to illustrate the fact, you know, that Castro and McEwen were very good friends. Um, when Castro came to the United States, uh, you know, shortly after he took power, he gave a speech to the UN and on his way back to Cuba, he stopped in Houston. Okay. And he was photographed as he got off the plane in Houston meeting Robert McCown. <laughs> okay. This is how much the, he, he liked this guy. And he invited McCown back to Cuba and told him, you know, he could have a position in his government or he would give him up whatever business he wanted, you know. And, but McEwen was on probation because they, uh, they had caught him, you know, running guns to Cuba and he wasn't allowed to leave the country legally. So he, kind of turned Castro down, you know, but they still remained very close friends. And then, you know, later on, uh, there was an incident involving McEwen's brother and some of his friends where they were arrested by uh, members of Castro's army and thrown in jail in Cuba. And upon hearing this, you know, McCown called Castro and was like, I need you to do me a favor. You know, and he explained the situation and Castro put his, uh, Put, the, put all these guys on a plane and, and got them back to the United States. So this is the kind of friendship that McCown had forged with Fidel Castro. And the reason we bring him up here, and, and John Armstrong touched on it, is you know Lee Harvey Oswald in early September. Um, well, I'm sorry. It was actually a few weeks before the assassination. So it would have been sometime in early November on a Saturday. Um, McCown told the HSCA um, that Oswald, a man identifying himself as Lee Oswald, and another man, a Latino man, he, he called Hernandez, showed up at his door one Saturday morning. And, you know, Oswald was like, you know, are you McCown? You know, my name is Lee Oswald, and uh, we'd like for you to uh, get us some guns. And we heard that, you know, all the, all the work you did for Castro and everything, we'd like you to get us some guns. You know, we'd be willing to pay you a lot of money. And I'm talking either, you know, I've seen it in two places, two, th two, two, two places. Uh, one uh, where he offers him a thousand dollars per gun for uh, 300 savages with scopes, fully automatic rifles. And I've also seen it uh, 10,000 for four, you know, that's a pretty, pretty damn good offer. Uh, but McCown smelled a rat and, you know, because he figured, you know, well, and he, and he told Oswald this, he's like, man, you can go to Sears and Roebuck and get the rifles you need for about $35 a piece. You know, what, what do you need me for to get, to get you these rifles and, you know, pay an exorbitant amount of money for them? Oh, we did. Well, we just know that you can get them, you know, and, and uh, this, that, and the other, but McCown wasn't having it. You know, he's told him basically to get, to get to stepping and, uh, and they did, they, they left. And then, and then a couple minutes later, Oswald came back to the door and pleaded with him again. And I, that may be where he upped his offer. And McCown still told him, no, that it's not going to happen. Uh, that he was on probation and he couldn't mess around with anything like that. Cause he smelled a rat. I mean, could you imagine if, like, like Armstrong was saying, you know, if McCown had supplied these rifles to Oswald, then I am damn certain that 
that's one of the rifles that would have been found in the school book depository because it could have been tied back to Castro's gun runner. I mean, that was a, that was a headline in the newspaper, in the Houston newspaper. When, when Castro came to see, uh, McCown, he's, you know, Castro's gun runner. Okay. So if, if they would have found a gun supplied by Castro's personal friend and gun runner, Robert McCown in the school book depository, they would have had zero problem tying Oswald back to Castro and the communists and make a real clear link there. And they would have had to do something at that point. And, and something Armstrong alluded to about the rifle is that, you know, that possibly at this point, you know, they weren't even sure what, you know, what rifle that they were going to use in the assassination. And that possibly this whole Kleins thing was, you know, fabricated relatively quickly after the assassination. Because, look, I know the lone nut guys think that everything's legit with all this gun stuff. But when you take a closer look at some of the problems, as many, many great researchers have pointed out, such as John Armstrong, David Josephs, Gil Jesus, when you, when you look really closely at these Klein rifles, that, you know, or the Klein rifle that was supposedly sent to Oswald. And of course the, the pistol, you know, which is, a, which is a different story, but I mean, the rifle itself, you know, there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that Oswald was sent this rifle, uh, to his PO box. There's, there's zero proof of it at all. There's no record of, of shipment. There's no receipts from the post office. There's, there's no nothing, you know, and, and, and the rifle was sent COD, you know, he did send a deposit, but you know, there was some to be paid on a delivery. And of course there's no record of that whatsoever. Um, you know, there's problems with the money order that, that Oswald supposedly sent with the rifle and that it didn't have the correct stamps on it to go through the correct banks to end up where it was supposed to end up. It was actually somewhere else. And, you know, there's all kinds of problems. You know, the, the FBI went to Klein's after the assassination, you know, looking for um, anything connecting Oswald to ordering a rifle, and they couldn't find anything. And then finally, at 5 o'clock in the morning, on Saturday the 23rd, they finally, you know, they were like, look, you know, we're just going to take all this microfish back, back to uh, Washington, and we'll look through it there. And that's what they did. They, they took... They took all this microfish and stuff back to Washington, and then miraculously they find the order form. Um, and of course, supposedly that the order form wasn't filled out by Oswald himself, and of course it wasn't addressed to Oswald himself. It was addressed to his alias Alec Heidel. Um, so there's all kinds of problems with these rifles, you know, and I could see a scenario that could have quickly produced the paperwork after the assassination to run this gun back to Oswald via his alias very quickly. Um, so yeah, just imagine for a second, you know, if, if they would have found a rifle obtained from McEwen, Castro's personal gun runner, all hell would have broke loose. There would have been no denying it at that point that, that the communists were behind Oswald. 
and then our government would have been forced to act, forced to do something, because then they could prove definitively that Oswald, this crazy communist with ties directly back to Castro, was behind the assassination. Fortunately, Robert McEwen was, was too smart to fall for this. So they had to go with another plan. Um, now, one other thing about Robert McEwen. Okay, when he went to the HSCA, his lawyer was uh, Mark Lane. And I, look, I'm going to tell you like this. I got a lot of problems with Mark Lane. Okay. And I think I'm going to do a show coming up in a little while about Mark Lane. And we're going to really take a good look at Mr. Mark Lane. Um, so keep an eye out for that. But, you know, this guy pops up in the weirdest places at the weirdest times. But when McCown was supposed to give his testimony, because there was some, some kind of a book deal uh, with... Uh, W.M. Morris, and there was a TV deal with the BBC with McEwen, and you know, all kinds of stuff that Lane had his fingers in. But when McCown had to go in front of the HSCA to testify, Mark Lane had a previous, more important commitment. So there left McCown all by his little lonesome himself to talk to the HSCA investigators, and he did not want to talk. They wanted to postpone, uh, their little conversation to a later date pending, you know, to when Mark Lane could be there. And they pretty much told him, you know, look, we, we, we don't need to wait for your lawyer. You know, it's not like you're on trial here for anything. We just need your testimony. And it was at that point that they told him, look, we're offering you immunized testimony. Anything you say, you know, nothing could be done to you. You know, it's basically, you can say whatever you want, hopefully the truth and Whatever it is, you know, it's not going to be held against you. You're not going to be charged with anything. You know, it's just we need the information. So they finally convinced McCown to talk. And, of course, he told him about this Oswald visit. And he told him a bunch of other things. And the story of the Oswald visit didn't exactly come out right away. Um, and in fact, he was... You know, he was being investigated back then. Of course, the FBI was on the account pretty good because um, they thought he was a, a, a commie lover and aiding the communists and this and that. So they had they were watching him. He was like I said, he was on probation. He spent some time in jail. Um, and they were talking to him, you know, through through the years at various points in times. But he never did mention this uh, Oswald thing until the 70s, until, you know. HSCA and, and this uh, documentary on the BBC. So, you know, he told him about the Oswald thing, but the reason that, that, that they had known about him uh, actually was back in the late 50s. He was, uh, I forget where he was living. I want to say, yeah, it was Houston. And he was approached by a, a cop buddy that he knew who said that he knew a guy in Dallas that, that wanted to talk to him. Would it be okay to give him his number? And McCown said, sure, that's fine. So 
Guess who calls Robert McCown in 1959? Jack Ruby. <laughs> Actually, Jack Rubenstein is how he identified himself to McCown. And he asked McCown, he said, look, you know, I got, you know, I got, I want to talk to you about some things. Is it okay if I come visit? McCown said, sure, you can come visit. So he said, this guy shows up real nice dressed, a suit, tie, hat, you know, fedora. And he shows up at his place of business down there and wants to talk to him. And, uh, there's various elements to the story depending on where you hear it from and who's telling it. But the crux of the story is this, that Jack Ruby wanted to, wanted McCown to use his connections to Castro. He said he had a bunch of Jeeps, military style Jeeps and armaments and, and things that he wanted to get to Castro. Could McCown facilitate, uh, you know, a meeting or an introduction uh, to Castro. And there was also some kind of a letter that Jack Ruby wanted from McCown saying, you know, to Castro vouching for him, uh, you know, I guess saying he was a good guy or whatever, because Jack Ruby wanted to get, uh, I think it was five guys out of jail down there. And once again, McCown was offered an exorbitant amount of money. It was, you know, first it was like $5,000 and he said, Jack Ruby came back like three or four days in a row, you know, and it it was finally up to like $25,000, you know, that, that he was offering McCown for this letter, this letter of introduction and vouching, uh, you know, for Jack and McCown told him, said, look, you know, you want the letter, you show me some money, show me you're interested in, in, you know, truly interested in this and you'll get your letter, you know, but Jack Ruby never did produce the money and, you know, he, he, he kind of stopped hearing from him. So he just figured the matter dropped. Um, now when Ruby was arrested and he, he told of a vague, uh, a vague story of something like this, but he mentioned that the man's name was Davis, um, and in the wrong kind of general area, but he said he approached him about, you know, uh, some, some, some Jeeps, uh, some armaments, things like that. Um, and they, they did investigate this way back, but the Warren commission never did. The FBI never brought it up to the Warren commission. McCown was never called before the Warren commission, um, or investigated then, you know, it wasn't until the HSCA and that his story had come out a little bit, um, that they wanted to talk to this guy and, and get it, get it down, uh, exactly what was going on. So, you know, call me a coincidence theorist if you want to, but it seems awfully funny to me that Jack Ruby would approach McCown about Castro and this and that and the other. And then Oswald would, a couple weeks before the assassination, approach McCown about some rifles. Now, how do you figure that Lee Oswald would have heard about Robert McCown? Because when all this stuff was going on, you know, with McCown and Castro, you know, Lee Oswald was in the Marine Corps. He was in Japan. And then he went straight to Russia. For two and a half years. 
So he had to hear about McCown from somebody. And that somebody is probably Jack Ruby. Now, a couple episodes ago, I spoke to you about William Duff and his so-called, you know, him fingering, you know, Jack Ruby as a, as a, as a kind of a, some kind of a conspirator with General Walker in this whole business. Because, you know, of course, after the assassination, we have Jack Ruby scared to death of the John Birch Society and General Walker. And he tells the Warren Commission this. We have Ruby acting like a crazy person the morning after the assassination, dragging Larry Crayford and George Senator out to take pictures of billboards and flyers and, and going to stake out P.O. boxes, you know, of the John Birch Society and, and Robert Surrey and who's a known associate of General Walker. So you have... You know, Ruby, very scared of these guys, very scared. And, you know, the connections are there. It it seems, it just seems, you know, it seems to me like there was some kind of a plan in place, you know. And, I mean, we don't even know for sure that it was Oswald that went went out to visit McCown. We just have McCown's word that, he recognized the guy after the assassination and put two and two together. So, you know, but he was, he was, you know, pretty much shook after that because he knew he was trying that he, that somebody was trying to set him up, you know, pretty good. You know, if it would have found that it, there was a gun that he got for this known communist Lee Oswald from cat, you know, <laughs> I mean, all hell would have broke loose. You know, he would have been, fingered in in this whole thing too so you know that kind of scared uh robert mccown and he didn't he didn't tell anybody about it like i said till the 70s and the and the hsca and in this documentary morris was going to write a book um with mccown telling his story and his connections and this that but i don't think it ever formally got got done I think there was a rough draft or a manuscript or something to that effect, but I don't think it ever saw the light of day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy how all this stuff comes to pass. And all these people are involved in this, that, and the other. You know, I was reading um, an interview with, uh, I think he talked to the HSCA, Raymond, Raymond Brashears. He was... A friend of David Ferry. He was his roommate for a time. And, you know, Ferry told, allegedly, told this guy all kinds of stuff in confidence, you know. Now, here's an interesting nugget. Brashears claims, you know, that he met Ferry um, when uh, actually. Brashears was handing out Christian Crusade literature uh, from, you know, Billy James Hargis, the uh, the uh, the Midnight Ride uh, guy with, uh, you know, the crazy anti-communist preacher that General Walker went on, on his crusade with uh, there in the beginning months of 63. So we have Brashears handing out this literature of Billy James Hargis uh, on a corner of the street in the French Quarter. And Brashears claimed that he was not a homosexual at the time, and he didn't know that Ferry was one. Brashears explained that uh, at the time, 
He was a vehement anti-communist and evangelist. He felt the Christian crusade literature was the best of its kind in the religion anti-communist movement. He passed a copy of the literature to Ferry, who uh, was intrigued by it and wanted to talk further at a nearby bar. Um, there, yeah, you know, these guys, these two guys are talking. Ferry, Ferry was telling Bashir's, you know, uh, you know, he thinks it's great what he's doing and his anti-communist work. And Bashir has told him of others doing similar work and mentioned a guy named Robert DePew, who was head of the Minutemen at the time as another who was greatly concerned with the rising communist tide in America. And Bashir said that uh, he had connections with the Pew's uh, Missouri operation. Ferry introduced Bashir's to the Orthodox Old Catholic Church of North America, and they became fast friends on both political and religious basis. Ferry and Bashir's uh, discussed the Cuban situation, which they felt had deteriorated during Kennedy's tenure. As well as communism, uh, Ferry discussed the anti-Castro-Cuban activity that was taking place in New Orleans at the time. You know, so once again, to get back to the crux of things here, and I'm reading a couple things here tonight from uh, General Walker and the murder of President Kennedy, um, because it's important. Uh, you know, this, I can't stress to you how important this book is in, in the big scheme of understanding exactly what happened and understanding the climate of the time that these people were living in and the environment that they were surrounding themselves in, you know, it's just insane to me. Now, <clears throat> when he was talking to the HSCA, uh, Brashears stated this, that Ferry was extremely angry with president Kennedy. He thought, uh, Kennedy sold out the country to the communists uh, the two men agreed that Kennedy was not telling the truth to the media about Cuba. Okay. And uh, he, he noted that Ferry was a pilot and flew private planes to various places such as Mexico and the Caribbean. And in 1965, Ferry had told him that he was engaged in gun running and flying supplies to anti-Castro forces. Um, Bashir's account suggests that Ferry was in a similar line of business as Jack Ruby and General Walker. Ferry told Bashirs that he worked for New Orleans mob boss Carlos Marcello and flew supplies, in quotes, for him. As was noted in, uh, if Marcello was involved in the assassination, it may have been because of his support of segregation, not the interests of the mafia. Um, you know, like I said, these guys were freaking huge racist bigots. They did not want integration whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. Um, I can't stress that enough. It, it's a theme. And it'll come into play here uh, even more when we get to Clinton. Um, so, okay. Um, one time in 63, Bashir says that he was at Ferry's apartment when a man came by that Brashears would later recognize as Lee Harvey Oswald. He described Oswald as a nice-looking young man who was very sexy-looking, but extremely nervous. Oswald sp spoke softly, and Brashears didn't hear what they said. Ferry became very upset and told Oswald that he shouldn't have come to his house, that he had no business there, that he was not supposed to be there. 
And if it's true that Oswald was at Ferry's apartment, then it's likely that Ferry did not want Oswald to risk blowing his communist cover by appearing at the residence of a, a fanatically anti-communist David Ferry. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Ferry did not introduce Oswald to Bashir, as he said. Uh, Bashir's estimated that Oswald's visit lasted between five and ten minutes, while an associate waited in a car for him. Bashir's estimated Oswald was 15 or 16 feet away when he saw him. Ferry never mentioned Oswald by name to Bashir's, and the only thing Ferry said to Bashir's about Oswald after the visit was that it wasn't any of Bashir's business, and that the man was into something he couldn't handle, and he was going to get himself hurt. Ferry said he was a screw-up, a mixed-up guy, and had dealings with, and he didn't like it. And the only other time Bashir's saw Oswald was when he was with Ferry at the office of Guy Bannister and his partner Hugh Ward, also in 63. Now, former FBI agent and garrison investigator William Turner interviewed high-ranking Minuteman Jerry Brooks, and he identified both Bannister and Ward as Minutemen. Brooks was associated with Bannister from 61 to 64 and worked at his office. As was noted, uh, Bannister's office was in the Newman Building, and mention of Hugh Ward's name was seldom, um, if ever, you know, in, in like newspaper stories of the Garrison investigation. So, Brashear's mention of the name Hugh Ward affirms that he knew something about the Bannister operation, lending further credibility to the claim that he saw Oswald there, as many others did as well. Now, that little tidbit of information uh, also runs highly contrary to the rantings and ravings and stories of Miss Judith Baker, who claims that her and Lee was always at David Ferry's apartment. Always. But this says very clearly that if and when Lee Oswald showed up at, at David Ferry's apartment, he was not welcome, period. And he was nothing but a screw-up, an oddball. So, <laughs> we have that. Um, now, let's see. Okay, Brashear, uh, you know, goes on, I think, in 65. Now, Ferry was extremely ill, extremely depressed in 65, and he began to open up about the assassination. At the same time, Brashear's had his own troubles. He was being investigated in connection to a plot by the Minutemen to assassinate Johnson, President Johnson. Both having been suspects in assassinations, plots, uh, Brashears and Ferry now had something else in common. Ferry told Brashears about his trip from New Orleans to Galveston, which had taken place the afternoon of the Kennedy assassination. Brashears said Ferry told him that he was supposed to pick up three men involved in the assassination and fly them from Galveston and eventually to Cape Town, South Africa, which did not have an extradition treaty at the, with the U.S., um, so yeah, it's crazy. Brashears recalled that Ferry told him that one of the men had a two-part Cuban name that included the name Garcia. Now, I'm assuming it's not Manuel Garcia Gonzalez, you know, the famous Dean Andrews guy that he pulled out of thin air. Uh, and he said the other two were not Cubans. The men never showed up and Ferry later learned they had flown out on another plane. Ferry didn't tell Brashears who hired him to fly the three men out. But Bashir's was under the impression that it was Marcelo's, or Carlos Marcelo or Sergio Acacia Smith. 
Smith was close to Guy Bannister in New Orleans, as well as H.L. Hunt in Dallas. Ferry told Brashears in 65 that there were three men involved in the Kennedy shooting, and he was very specific about that. Brashears could not say, however, whether there were three separate shooters as opposed to one doing the shooting and the other two helping in some way. Brashears told the HSCA that Ferry made it very, very clear to him that Ferry could have been prosecuted as a part of the Kennedy assassination conspiracy. If that had happened, Ferry told him in 65 that he would have killed himself. Ferry allegedly told Brashears that Oswald did not shoot the president. Ferry went on to adamantly point out that he knew Oswald was a poor shooter. Ferry told him that Oswald could not hit a cow 25 feet away with a double barrel shotgun. He said other people were following Oswald and other men shot the president and used or set Oswald up. Ferry also told Brashears that Oswald was nonetheless guilty of being involved in the assassination conspiracy which was a death penalty offense. Ferry told him that the poor job done in investigating the assassination proved to him that there was a government cover-up and that there were communism uh, and that there was communism in the government, communist in the government. Uh, Ferry did not provide Bashir with any information on Jack Ruby. The only thing Ferry discussed with him is how upset he was that the Dallas police allowed Oswald to be killed. He said Oswald's life wasn't worth a plug nickel and he was set up. Ferry did not tell Bashir's about the, deta- the, de- the details of how Oswald was set up. When the HSCA asked Bashir's about it, he repeated that Ferry told him Oswald was a dupe, a decoy, and that Ferry had told Bashir's that Oswald was in over his head and he didn't know what he was doing. Um, so, you know, this whole New Orleans aspect to the assassination has always been fascinating to me because I think that I always thought that that's where the key to kind of figuring out the conspiracy where the key, you know, that's where the key lies. When you take a look at the Bannister operation and you really figure out what exactly what in the hell Bannister was doing down there and who he was involved with down there in New Orleans and what these guys were doing, you know, the men of men, the John Birch society, the, um, Congress on racial equality, you know, fighting these anti-communists, these anti-segregate uh, or anti-integration people, you know. And and Kennedy had made mention, I believe, it was in June of '63, you know, about the Civil Rights Act and that it was coming, and that he was going to try to try to get it passed. And so the heat was on, you know. They looked at at civil rights. And integration as a as a communist principle. This is how twisted and warped these guys' brains were back then. You know, they thought that it was the work of communists to want to integrate the races and have equality for all mankind. You know, that's a twisted, twisted concept. Um, but it was what they believed. They believed that this country was being run by commie, pinko bastards. They were leading us straight into hell, and they believed it to their core. And I want to talk about motive for a second, because Oswald on his own never had a motive to kill Kennedy. Never. Never. And when you ask Lone Nutters, what's the motive? Well, well, you don't need a motive because he's just a crazy person. He's a lone nut. You know, he wants to be a big shot. He wanted to be famous, right? 
he wanted to do this and he wanted to do that. But yet when he's arrested, he don't do shit. He doesn't proclaim, you know, I got that son of a bitch. You know, he, he doesn't say anything like that. In fact, he vehemently denies these charges. You know, he didn't say anything in custody. He didn't admit to anything in custody. You know, but you have real, verifiable, recorded threats to the president from these far right groups. And they're just, they're overlooked. Well, actually, I take that back. They're not overlooked because you know what? And a lot of people don't know this, but when Jim Garrison first started his investigation, he was actually investigating uh, General Walker, whom he gave the code name Eddie Blue to. Of course, Eddie being a form of Edwin and Blue, uh, you know, his uh, referring to his 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 Blue program in in Germany. Um, and Harry Blue for, of course, H.L. Hunt. And when Garrison's investigation became public in 1967, uh, he proclaimed that, that, the, that the radical right, the Minutemen, and wealthy oil men were involved in the Kennedy assassination. Now, that allegation soon changed, however, and he dropped all references to the radical right and instead started implicating the CIA, for which he had zero credible evidence. Garrison could not have survived prosecuting the radical right, who had an underground army at their disposal that was actively committing murders of integrationists and African Americans during that era. It is worth noting that although Garrison's public story changed, uh... The author, Jeffrey Caulfield, uh, obtained Garrison's existing files from his family and most, if not all, pointed to the radical right involvement in the assassination. <laughs> so, there you have it. Some They got to Garrison. They did. They got to him. And if you, if you think that's crazy, you know, I've mentioned the name on the show, Leander Perez, before. He was actually a judge in New Orleans with offices in the, in the, in the uh, Camp Street building with with Guy Bannister, and he was, of course, a part of of the uh, the Minutemen, and, and had ties to John Birch Society and General Walker. And <laughs> I'm telling you, Jim Garrison had no clue. I mean, he what he was up against. You know, there's no way he could have gone after the the you know the, the extreme right and survived. They were surrounding him in New Orleans. They were in high positions of power. In New Orleans, they were all in the police department. They were all through city management. <clears throat> they were all judges, people of power. No way Jim Garrison would have gotten away with going after them. So the narrative switches to the CIA, and he doesn't mention them again, just like he doesn't mention the mafia. Of course, he was never steering. Look, you know, he was never looking hard at the mafia. You know, but. He was looking at the far right in 1966. This was where he started his investigation. You know, because David Ferry, I believe, uh, let me see if I can find it here real quick. Well, we might run across it here in a little bit. Um, but 
to jump to jump ahead here a little bit now. Brashears was bothered when the investigators told him his name was mentioned in the book Cover Up by Gary Shaw, stating that he had never given an interview to anybody, and he was troubled to uh, at several points during the HSCA interview. <clears throat> excuse me, believing his co- cooperation might get him into trouble with the assassination conspirators. Brashears told the HSCA that in 1968, Garrison investigators took him back to New Orleans from California and put him up at the Fontainebleau Hotel on Canal Street. After returning from Garrison's office, he found the room ransacked. He had just come into the room and turned off the lights when two gunshots were fired through the window. So, somebody definitely did not want Brashears to tell Garrison anything. Um, you know, and just just to tell you a little bit about Brashears, of course, you know the people on the the, the lone nut side will tell you, you know, well, Brashears was a was a known liar, and we shouldn't believe anything that he has to say, but, um. He was scared talking to the HSCA. And he he was scared talking to Garrison. But you know the type that the type of guy this is. You know Brashears he uh, he formed a vigilante group in uh, San Francisco called the Lavender Panthers. Uh, their function was to protect gays from violence in the same way that the Black Panthers protected blacks. On one occasion, when some teenagers stopped outside of a gay bar and started pushing homosexuals around. Brashears and some friends took pool cues and started flailing ass. (laughs) Uh, The aim of the Lavender Panthers, according to Brashears, was to strike terror in the hearts of all these young punks who have been beating up his faggots. Brashears himself had once been severely beaten outside of his gay mission center. Brashears displayed the kind of military militancy one would expect of someone who had been involved with the Minutemen. You know, he wasn't some limp-wristed take-it-how-you-can-get-it kind of guy, you know. He was very militant in his actions. But, you know, as we know, you know, when when Ferry was, you know, he he told uh, Garrison uh, stuff, he told Garrison investigator stuff, he told Bashir stuff, um, You know, it's just insane. Now, let's move to the, the, the whole Clinton escapade. You know, the Clinton, Louisiana uh, deal where supposedly Oswald shows up in Clinton with Clay Shaw and David Ferry and this big black spook, you know, spooky Cadillac. And he generally makes an ass out of himself and makes himself very noticed by like the whole town by... You know, signing up and standing in this registered line for black voters and supposedly inquiring about uh, employment opportunities there in Clinton. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there was there was a lot of things going on back then, you know, and when I talked about, let's see, David was it no Ron Lewis's book last year flashback you know he told us that the reason that Oswald went to Clinton was to start shit um because of some there was some something going on over there and and now what I read in this book you know I what Oswald did 
in Clinton actually accomplished something. And a lot of people don't really know about what it accomplished, but I'm going to tell you here. Because the HSCA and the, and the Garrison investigation didn't really turn up a whole lot from from this deal other than to tell us that it was mainly some kind of a front for Oswald to find employment. But why in the hell would Oswald drive 130 miles away from New Orleans to find a job? You know, it's not like he had a car and he could hop and commute this giant long distance from every day, you know. And he didn't really have the means to root, uproot his family and, and, you know, start over in some town 130 miles south of New Orleans to, you know, to, to work in a mental hospital. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's insane, pardon the pun, to, to think that that would happen. But the House Select Committee on Assassinations determined that these, uh, that there were four white individuals who had personal encounters with Lee Harvey Oswald and Clinton. They failed to appreciate that all four of these guys were members of a tight knit, uh, Ku Klux Klan Clavern. Led by Judge John Ratrick, Rarick, and his close friend, Town Council Richard Van Buskirk. Now, Van Buskirk and Rarick worked with Leander Perez in the summer of '63 to draft the free election legislation, which was aimed at depriving Kennedy of the state's electoral votes. Voter registrar Henry Earl Palmer, who also had an encounter with Oswald, was also an associate of, you guessed it, Guy Bannister. The HSCA further failed to note that the FBI had documented that three of the four Clinton witnesses had antipathy or a violent inclination toward the core workers. Now, core is an acronym for Council on Racial Equal- Congress on Racial Equality Workers. Now, these guys, Rarick and Van Buskirk, created the injunction against CORE and declared that CORE had at least one individual among them who was a member of the Communist Front Group. An action which was taken shortly after Oswald was seen among a group of African Americans who were registering to vote as part of the CORE initiative. The Congress of Racial Equality was the third Senator James Eastland deemed communist front group that Oswald had infiltrated or affected a physical relationship with in addition to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and the NACPA or the New Orleans Committee for Peaceful Alternatives. Each group had close ties to SCEF which, as will be shown, is of paramount significance. So Oswald's appearance in the core registration line was as phony as the FPCC and the Nakba sagas. The pronouncement that Reds had infiltrated the core came four days before the raid on SCEF. When it was announced, and that's the Senate Committee on... Equality for I'll I'll get it, but uh, when it was announced, the Reds had infiltrated that organization as well, suggesting that the incidents were directly related. However, 
none of Oswald's posturing was done with the Kennedy assassination in mind. The segregationists, with their Communist Control Act of 62 in hand, aimed to show through the seizure of material in the October 63 Perez-Eastland-aided raid on SCEF that the Civil Rights Movement was infiltrated by communists like Oswald, who were Soviet-directed. Eastland planned on investigating Oswald's product of his imagination chapter of the FPC before the, the FPCC before the assassination, which was tantamount to investigating Oswald, as he was the only member. As Holt by the SCEF raid planners and investigation of Oswald in connection uh, would show that he was a Soviet agent who funded and encouraged violence in the communist front groups he infiltrated as part of a world communist movement to defeat the United States as was predicted in the wording of the Communist Control Act. But, in 1962, the United States was on the brink of nuclear war with the uh, Soviet Union and the Cuban Missile Crisis, injecting the communist threat into civil rights, uh, in effect, riding the Red Scare of the time, was done in an attempt to preserve segregation by outlawing the civil rights movement and its related groups. Oswald was their ringer, with his communist and communist front background well established after President Kennedy's trip to Dallas was announced. On September 12, 1963, the individuals behind Oswald, who were involved in the assassination conspiracy, shifted a naive Oswald from the role of ringer to the role of patsy. <laughs> now, and... and Included in, in his book, in his book is a newspaper article that plainly states, uh, let me see if we can find it here, plainly states that, that, that this, uh, the core movement was infiltrated by Reds, and this, this put a halt to, uh, to the, uh, Well, there was ties to the Louisiana American Activities Committee, LUAC. Um, there was uh, subversion and racial unrest hearings. But yeah, this, uh, like I said, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Okay, you know, there's all these committees and subcommittees and Senate hearings, and all these organizations being investigated, and this, that, and the other. And there was all this shit going on down there in New Orleans. And goddamn, Oswald was right in the middle of all of it. And they were using him in more ways than we even know or can comprehend to effect change for the radical right agenda. And it's quite clear from reading this book Okay, that these guys were were doers. They were movers and shakers. They didn't. They got things done. They were, you know, they were were always doing something. They were always trying to do something. You know, these I can't explain to you enough how badly these guys were anti-communist, and they believe me. They thought Kennedy was the biggest communist threat to the United States that ever lived 
because of what happened in Cuba and his soft stance on communists and the Soviets. Believe me, they hated him, hated him and what everything that he stood for because they didn't want this nation to progress past its primitive ways of segregation and, you know, world peace. No, no, no. You know, these guys have been indoctrinated that communism was a big time threat. And, you know, you couldn't tell a communist from another guy, you know, until, you know, they opened their mouth and their beliefs started pouring out. You know, that was a big sticking point for them that, you know, how can you tell who's a communist and who isn't? It's by their actions. And these, trust me, these guys would never be mistaken for communists. That's for damn sure. Now, Ruth Payne, in 1964, stated that she had heard from a reporter, Lonnie Hudkins of the Houston Post, that Marguerite Oswald was working for Miss Linda Rosenthal as a practical nurse in Fort Worth during September and October of 62. Oswald reportedly told Ms. Rosenthal her son was doing important anti-subversive work. Now this is before the assassination, folks. Hudkins speculated that perhaps Oswald made a deal with the U.S. government to do work on behalf of its anti-subversive endeavors in turn for being granted permission to return to the U.S. from the Soviet Union. Hudkins told the FBI that he was on a fishing expedition in his investigation to see if Oswald could have been a stool pigeon for the CIA or FBI. The FBI interviewed Mrs. Rosenthal, and she told them that she got the impression from Mrs. Oswald that Lee was working for the U.S. government in Russia. Okay? The same year, Bannister, Badeau, and Leander Perez were trying... Were tying communism to the civil rights movement, the Red Scare intensified. Um, and of course, you know, we have the space race and everything else. Um, now, I'm gonna, I want to read you part of a part of a letter because I think it's pretty damn damning. Okay. Um, let me flip to it here. Now, this is a letter from. Baton Rouge Police Detective Joe Cooper. Oh, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Wrong one. Wrong one. This is uh, from Hubert Badeau. And now he headed the New Orleans Police Red Squad under Guy Bannister. When Guy Bannister was working for the New Orleans Police. Okay. Badeau wrote the below letter to Willie Raynack in 1957. Uh, he was a senator. His signature is on the letter. Um, blah, blah, blah. Now, get a load of this here. He writes, among other things here. Um, it sounds like an uh, attempt for, you know, maybe get some funding. Um, I have been in contact with an out-of-town person whom I have been grooming to come here and take over the establishment of infiltration into the university and intellectual groups. I will tell you in detail about this when I see you in person. 
There is another matter which I discussed with Bill Simmons and Jackson, and which I don't care to put in writing at this time. I wish you would contact him as soon as you can so that you may be on guard. You might mention to Mr. Shaw <clears throat> that Senator Eastland told us that this session of Congress intends to amend the Smith Act so that all the state anti-communist laws will be valid and operable. That will be all the more reason for having the state squad. Let me hear from you at your convenience. So right there is proof that in New Orleans, okay, under Guy, under the tutelage and watch of Guy Bannister, they were grooming individuals to be infiltrators into communist organizations. Okay. And there's one other one here I wanted to tell you about. Uh, this did, now this one is, uh, from Baton Rouge police detective Joe Cooper, who reported the meeting between Guy Bannister and General Walker in 1963. Okay. It says, I received your letter today concerning A. Bannister, B. the National States Rights Party, C. Fred Korth, now, on Bannister, I met him at a Carl McIntyre meeting in 1964. This was at the Capitol House Hotel. I believe he was introduced to me by Mr. John East of Zachary, L.A., Louisiana. Or it was Mr. George Ratliff of the radio station Wink of Baton Rouge. I know it was one of those. I heard that he had a file on Oswald, and I was interested in this at the time. I am sending you some copies of some material I had my files on him. I also heard... That Van Buskirk of Clinton. Now we mentioned him. We mentioned him before. Okay. Um, he was one of the people that Lee Oswald met with in Clinton. Um, I also heard that Van Buskirk of Clinton was with him when he died. Now he's referring to Guy Bannister here. Okay. I sent Charles Ward the material I had on him. The National States Rights Party, as far as can be determined, only had a few members here in Baton Rouge. Um, and I'm trying to see if there's anything else worth uh, talking about here. No, I think that's it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, can't you imagine getting your hands on Guy Bannister's files that just go missing I mean, it's crazy. You know, everybody says he died from, you know, a heart attack and natural causes, but kind of makes you wonder. Because you got Hugh Ward dying, David Ferry dying, Guy Bannister dying. You know, a lot of these, uh, <laughs> a lot of these guys from New Orleans end up quickly, quickly dying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to touch on some things today, you know, that, that maybe a lot of people don't know about. Some things that maybe people haven't heard about before and make some connections for you, you know, that uh, explain a lot, at least to me, about what was going on in New Orleans and what in the hell Oswald was doing. Um, you know, it seems pretty evident to me, especially from what he was doing in Clinton, you know, with the core uh with the, you know, with the voting thing, trying to get that um, kiboshed, you know, the, the Congress on racial equality, um, you know, they oh they have a they have a, a a giant red communist in the in their midst, you know, which put off this this 
um, you know, which put off this this passing of this bill, um, and it succeeded. You know, you know. Of course, Oswald wasn't mentioned by name, uh, you know, but just his antics and the fact that he was there and that he was present and with all these black folks and Clinton was enough. Was it? It was enough for them, you know, to postpone. Um, you know, these meetings and this legislature going on, um, on racial equality and it worked, it worked. And then, you know, these guys can be tied back to Guy Bannister and, and general Walker and all these other right wing racist, some bitches down there in the South and, you know, tied up in a nice, neat little bow, verifiable recorded threats to the president. Garrison was investigating them. And all of a sudden he had a real big change of heart. You know, General Walker, he had George DeMore and Shield and Marguerite Oswald put on surveillance in 1967. Through 1969. Why? <laughs> it was to make sure they didn't talk or, or, be in the position to say the wrong thing to the wrong person. You know, George or General Walker wrote a letter to somebody explaining that, you know, they were worried about Jack Ruby's talking because he was the only one, uh, you know, f not focusing the blame on the far right that if he die, you know, that if he, if he, if he goes away or if he opens his mouth, you know, then there's going to be no more obstruction to them coming after them. And they said they were going to make sure that Jack Ruby left the hospital in a box. So, you know, and this is who Jack Ruby was afraid of. In Dallas. The city of hate. So, take for what you will. And like I said, um, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take a little closer look at old Mark Lane. That's for damn sure. And uh, really get into what's going on with him. And next week, I got a really cool show for you. I got a guest that you've never heard from before. It's going to be on the show. And we're going to be just tearing in and ripping to shreds the events of November 22nd, 1963. And you're not going to want to miss it. So, folks, this some bitch is in the can. Beamed up to the satellite. Down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Benjamin Banger. Freemusicarchive.org.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from $19.99 or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from $19.99 or higher. And all repairs. Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right. Total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149. 